Syria chemical attacks, what does it really mean for US-Russian relations? President Putin is no fool and uh, will want to come and have some sort of resolution, but I think there's going to have to be a lot of give and take on both sides. Is North Korea the country we should really be watching closely? And 100 years on, remembering America's entry into the Great War. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper sitting in this week for Kate Chabot. Donald Trump says relations between the US and Russia may be at an all-time low. It's Russia's support of the Syrian president that's the problem. Mr Trump has described Bashar al-Assad as a butcher. It comes after the US Secretary of State Rex Tillerson failed to persuade Vladimir Putin to drop his support for Assad following the recent chemical attack. Russia's vetoed a UN Security Council draft resolution demanding that Syria cooperates with an investigation into the attack. Speaking to AFP, Syrian President al-Assad accused the West of having staged the chemical weapons attack. Our impression that the West, mainly the United States, is hand in glove with the terrorists. They fabricated the whole story in order to have a pretext for the attack. It wasn't attack because of what happened in Khan Sheikhoun. It's one event, it's a stage one, the play that we saw on the social networking and on TVs, uh, the propaganda, and the stage two is the military uh, attack. That's what we believe is happening. Bashar al-Assad. Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon is a chemical weapons expert and has been speaking to our reporter, Jenny Longdon. He's certain that the nerve agent sarin was used in last week's attack. I've investigated a number of chemical attacks in Syria in March 2013 in a place called Sheikh al-Musid near Aleppo, and then in May 2013 in a place called Sarakeb in Idlib near where the attack was last week. And the modus operandi uh, was very similar to what we saw last week in Idlib. And after those events, we set up something called the CBRN Task Force in Syria, which trained doctors and medics to treat chemical casualties, but also to take evidence that that evidence found its way into Turkey and Turkish military hospitals and, and the Turkish health ministry declared that those samples were pro- positive for sarin. So we're certain it's sarin. Um, the reports coming out of aircraft uh, dropping uh, chemical munitions on the day are consistent with that. And also, they always use chemical weapons when they're in real trouble. And uh, they've been fighting in Idlib now for six years. And this seemed to be a final push to try and defeat the rebels there. We are hoping, and I understand they're talking about no-fly zones at the moment, if the Russians can deliver the ceasefire that started off in Estonia a few months ago um, and make sure that that is held, if we can create no-fly zones and safe zones to get aid into the right places and aid reconstruction, and the full diplomatic and political effort of the UN Security Council goes towards the Geneva process, which is the uh, process that is aimed to come up with a solution to the Syrian conflict in the 18 months, um, then actually there might be a silver lining to this dreadful atrocity that happened last week, killing so many and injuring so many in Idlib and Syria. It doesn't look immediately like Moscow are particularly pleased with anything that's come out from the US in the last week. How likely is it that that they will come to a resolution? Well, I think um, we, you know, we're, we're just going to have to see. Um, it's the best hope that we've had for a long time. Um, I think now that uh, President Trump, whatever one thinks about him, he has taken demonstrative action as his predecessors and others haven't. And I think, you know, the Russians are people who who 
probably appreciate this sort of approach more than others. It's going to be very interesting whether uh, a stick or carrot um, effort towards the Russians is going to be most beneficial. But I think the fact that they're talking, the fact that Tillerson is in Moscow and discussing, and we know that uh, President Putin is no fool and uh, will want to come and have some sort of resolution. But I think there's going to have to be a lot of give and take on both sides. And uh, the West are going to have to accept that Russia is going to have bases, I expect, in Syria. And the Russians are going to have to accept that uh, probably their, their key ally, Assad, is not going to have a long-term role in Syria. And uh, they're probably going to have to accept that the UN are going to move in in some force. And I would hope that we would get UN peacekeepers in there to try and shore up the country, get all the aid. There is masses amounts of aid in Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan waiting to go in there and try and come up with some sort of solution. Well, there we go. That was uh, Jenny Longton talking with Hamish de Breton Gordon, the chemical weapons expert. On SITREP today, we have two uh, eminent people talking about all of the issues. And the first of those is Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science at Southern Utah University over in the United States. Michael, hello. How are you today? Uh, I am well. Good, good, nice good. Nice to speak to you. Lovely to speak to you again. And in the studio with me here is our defence analyst here at BFBS, Christopher Lee. We've got so much to talk through uh, in this top story. NATO, Trump, Syria, Assad. Michael, let's start to you and let's focus in on the NATO element first of all. In the election, he was going NATO, basically waste of space. Big U-turn, speaking with Stoltenberg, it is now no longer obsolete. That's a big U-turn. How's that playing in the States? Um... With his uh, uh, initial supporters, not very well. Um, uh, Trump ran on a, uh, a ticket that uh, was quite frankly uh, skeptical of international institutions and international uh, initiatives. In this last week, uh, there's been a 180 degree uh, uh, shift uh, in American foreign policy. Uh, he is suddenly uh, supportive of, uh, uh, of NATO in a very optimistic way. He took action in Syria. Um, uh, he has sent a message that uh, uh, <laughs> Vladimir Putin no longer has a pal in the White House. And uh, all of this um, uh, was incredibly surprising last week. Christopher, what are your thoughts on this? Do you agree with Michael's assessment? Yes, I do. Very much so. Um, uh, let's take NATO. So President Trump says, now listen, um, I told them a couple of things, or one thing in particular, and NATO fixed it, so NATO's okay now. Mm. You know, I saw, what do you do? I immediately rang up half a dozen guys in Brussels, three of them worked for NATO, and said, what was this one thing? And they said, well, he didn't, we never even heard of him. We didn't hear from him, we didn't hear from the ambassador, we didn't hear from the perm rep, the perm representative, we didn't hear from the representative of the military committee. So forget it, this is just something that President uh, uh, Trump said. So I think we can, we can set that aside. But we are in dangerous country here. We're in the country now where the so-called superpowers cannot fix a problem like Syria. And we've got to accept that. And so everything changes. So everything is said, people leap on it and say, well, this is going to be good. No, let's take the low-fly zones, for example. Uh, you can't do low-fly zones in that, in that area. Who flies them, first one? Who retaliates against them? You start flying them around the Russians. The Russians want to get up there, climb alongside you and say, look, 
you know, back off. Who decides the rules of engagement uh, and who decides the terms of reference? None of this will be decided because it has to have one other thing, and that is it has to have the Permanent Council, the P5, the United Nations actually confirming it. It will not get it because the because the Russians and the Chinese have already said they won't actually let you do it. Um, the We have uh, President uh, uh, Assad now saying, well, don't worry, it wasn't us that did uh, did the uh, chemical weapons uh, and you say well what effect has it had on you it had no effect at all uh, and he's absolutely right because the Americans say we knocked out 26% of the aircraft for example you can fly at, you know, 26% is only 3 so you fly in three extra Su-22s. Um, you've then got to say, well, what about the runway? Runway? Good gracious me, you can repair a runway in 12 hours. They, we knocked out their fuel supplies to fly aircraft. It's only one Bowser. You know, that, that one Bowser doesn't deliver enough fuel to a, to a highway uh, petrol station. You know, let, let's get real about this. But the symbolism of it is the important thing, isn't it? Not the actuality of what they achieved to destroy. It's the fact that they did it, isn't it? Oh, it is that it, they did. And they have this idea now that there is a, a president who will do things. But you can't just do things. Uh, and I think the next stage you've got to get is, is, is somebody's got to start getting to the people who actually understand. Listen, the president mm. is briefed in the morning from an iPad. You know, this is what happens. Seriously, this is what happens. This is a very good way. There are n maximum five items, one-liners on the iPad, and each person from each department goes in to the, to the briefing room, hands the president, and if there's something he wants to be developed, he does. That's the level of his understanding. And that was why he came out with this this line on NATO. It is why mm. he came out the line upon babies in the arms of their uh, their fathers, etc. It is very good. Yeah. But I'm fascinated with the, the idea that that Michael's covering here, and that is the people that voted for him, those are the people that are going to get a bit mad about this because they said, we said we'd stay out. We voted for you. We said that NATO was no good. We voted for you. And in fact, is this actually having an adverse effect on the presidency of one of the most interesting presidents the Americans have ever had since Teddy Roosevelt? Michael, pick up on that, would you? Do you think it's quite a negative <laughs> week for Trump? Well, I take offense at uh, mentioning uh, Teddy Roosevelt and That's Trump in the same it. sentence. Uh, but uh, uh, there is also uh, something of a civil war going on within uh, the West Wing uh, in terms of um, the uh, uh, advising of this president. The influence of uh, ultra-right wing Steve Bannon uh, is on the outs. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, there are many people here or who uh, suggest that the days that he's even going to be in the administration are um, uh, can be uh, counted on one hand. On the other hand, especially this last week, uh, we note the very uh, significant new influence um, uh, of the president's own daughter, Ivanka, uh, Ivanka uh, Kushner and the son-in-law Jared, uh, Jared Kushner and the interesting thing is of course uh, they are on the, uh, the complete opposite spectrum of uh, Steve Bannon and uh, uh, his ilk and uh, actually um, uh, I, I know this uh, will make the ground shake uh, they, 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 they are actually coming from a liberal direction um, and uh, this is causing a, a, an enormous uproar that's right. Uh, hey, in Michael, policy making in the White House. Take ten dollars and put it on Ivanka as the next president. 
<laughs> I uh, I normally don't bet unless it involves college football. But uh, 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 no, but she she is um, someone who is uh, who is going to be very very significant. Uh, the uh, general wisdom here is that uh, the American attack on that uh, airfield, which uh, Chris was absolutely right, this is a symbolic gesture. It had little practical effect, but uh, this came um, uh, over the uh, uh, very, very emotional uh, urging of his daughter. And Steve Bannon was against it. Um, uh, uh, he did not want this uh, uh, action to take place. But his star is uh, is fading, and uh, well, we we are something uh, we are seeing something of a royal family uh, institution emerge here. Oh, well, talking of royal family institutions, at least let's move on to North Korea, another family business. It's certainly very true. And uh, President Trump has been warning about North Korea, saying in a tweet that Pyongyang was looking for trouble. He's also as China, North Korea's only real ally, to help deal with its neighbour. And North Korea says it will forcefully defend itself following the U.S. decision to deploy warships off the Korean peninsula. A former U.S. ambassador to South Korea, Christopher Hill, says the deployment sends an important message to Pyongyang. It's clearly a move aimed at putting the North Koreans on notice that we are watching it closely. And I think it's a follow-up to Secretary of State Tillerson's comment that everything's on the table. Now, whether this would really strike North Korea is another matter, but I think it's reminding the North Koreans that the U.S. has a direct stake in this and, frankly, a direct role. Well, there we go. That was uh, Christopher Hill there. I want to go to you, Michael, on this one. Talking in a similar way as we were about Assad and Syria and Russia, or watching what the White House are doing, seeing how they're dealing with problems or not, do you think the North Koreans are adopting that approach, looking at the administration and seeing how far they can push it? I think they are. Um, I think that... uh uh, they have been testing uh, the, the Trump administration for weeks now. Uh, now, the other side of the coin is, of course, that uh, uh, Kim Jong-un uh, uh, will literally do almost anything to get uh, uh, world attention. And uh, he will push, he will make ridiculous statements, he will test um, uh, new missiles, uh, uh, there are rumors that he is on the verge of uh, uh, yet another underground nuclear test. Uh, these things are attempting to push um, uh, buttons, particularly uh, in Washington. And in my opinion, the worst thing that can be done is to uh, take the bait, uh, to uh, to re- uh, react to some of this uh, uh, bluster. And uh, uh, the Bush administration has reacted, uh, both in statement uh, particularly in what we call tweets uh, on the EPAD, uh, but um, more significantly, moving a significant part of the Pacific Fleet um, uh, towards the um, uh, Korean Peninsula. Uh, and uh, evidently, uh, there's a joint action for uh, elements of uh, the Japanese uh, Defense Force uh, to also move into this area. And uh, this is just going to serve to uh, uh, pour uh, gasoline on the fire as far as uh, uh, the uh, uh, great leader in North Korea is, is, is concerned. Um, uh, so the question the really... The odd thing is, if, if we compare Kim Jong-un uh, uh, to people in Moscow, 
uh, Moscow actually becomes the center of rationality. Uh, that does not exist uh, in the decision-making in Korea. So the question really, Christopher, is should the US be involved or should they just take a hands-off approach? Because there is a lot of evidence that despite Kim Jong-un's continued tests and military rhetoric, that he is changing society. Just this week he opened a new business park. Small businesses are being allowed in North Korea for the first time in a limited way. So there is change happening. Should the US back off and let it happen? Yeah, the country's broke, that's why. Mm. Um, North Korea wants respect. He's a great scholar of what happened when Pakistan got nuclear weapons. And instead of being harangued by everybody to join the non-proliferation treaty, suddenly they were a powerful force. That's the way he thinks going. Uh, the other thing is, by the way, is the, the the Japanese are sending people to the area. I think they were going to do that. I think this is an annual exercise, but he will respond by that. Fascinating uh, other thought, though. Uh, after 37 seconds, the missile test that uh, the North Koreans used about 10 days ago, the missile blew. Mm. And it turned round in the air <laughs> and came down. Now, uh, the, in South Korea, they're saying, we knew this was going to happen. We hacked into it. But as an American team in South Korea actually hacked into it, are we getting this cyber warfare uh, 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 bringing? But remember, the biggest problem in the world that faces Russia and uh, America and everybody else at the moment is none of these countries. It's Iran, because Iran controls the whole Middle East at the moment. And there's the story that neither superpower can hack. The power brokers in the Middle East. Yes, indeed. Michael, stay with us. We'll be back with you a little bit later on. OK, thank you. Still to come on the programme, we mark the centenary of the Americans entering the First World War. BFBS SIPREP. Yes, indeed, it is SIPREP on BFBS with Tim Cooper in for Kate Chabot this week. Now, the First Sea Lord has announced the Royal Marines are to lose 200 posts. The MOD says the cuts are part of efforts to adapt to meet the challenges of a dangerous and uncertain world. It's thought the money saved by the Marines will be used to address reported staff shortages on the new aircraft carriers. Lord Ashdown, Paddy Ashdown, is a former Royal Marine and Special Boat Service Officer. I spoke to him earlier on and asked for his reaction. Whenever you read one of those statements that doesn't use the word cut but says repurpose, and you immediately think Southern Rail that tells us when it cancels trains, it's actually restructuring. The simple truth is this. Uh, because of that stupid defence review carried out in 2010, which, with a, which ended up without political direction and with the service chiefs squabbling amongst which of their most prestigious toys they would keep, we ended up ordering aircraft carriers without even having fighters on them. Now, we have to man those, 6.2 billion a time, and because the Navy doesn't have the sailors, it's now sacking Royal Marines, um, which is, in my view, Yes, it's the um, the message it sends out, isn't it? Particularly yeah. in terms of morale for the remaining 6,800 or so of them. Well, there's that. And, and you know, it, it's also something slightly, which really perplexed me. First of all, this was a stupid decision to start with. It ends up as a stupid decision. It plays fast and loose with the defence of the nation. But in the past, all previous defence secretaries, if they had to cut, and you have to from time to time, would always start with the tail, with the administrative the tail. And instead of which, our Defence Secretary, in this most dangerous age, is starting with the frontline troops, the elite. I suspect this is serious. I think this really is a restructuring. I know there are naval warships which are being forced to lie alongside keys because they don't have the sailors to man them. I know that there are naval uh, ships that are being put into the reserve fleet early to make way for these 
um, these carriers who many, many defense analysts regard as future floating white elephants. Um, but I think uh, all of that is very regrettable. We live in hard times, difficult times, but they're also dangerous times. Paddy Ashdown speaking there. A statement has been released uh, by the Admiralty. First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Philip Jones said, The Royal Marines remain bound into every part of the Royal Navy's future. They will continue to be as vital to the defence of the realm in the years ahead as they have been for the past 350. Christopher Lee, as part of these cuts, it looks like 4-2 Commando will be withdrawn from frontline service, turning into a, a sort of maritime ops unit. Uh, the way forward, do you think? Uh, well, it's going to be, because that's what they're going to do. But, I mean, look at two statements. One is for the uh, uh, First Sea Lord. Uh, the uh, the booties are going to remain as vital to the defence of the realm in three years uh, ahead as they have been for the past 350 years, so we're going to lose 200 of them, mm. right? And so the MOD says, <clears throat> the cuts are part of efforts to adapt to meet the challenges of a dangerous and uncertain world, so get rid of the Royal Marines. It's puff, isn't it, what they're saying? Yeah, it's rubbish. It is absolutely... I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making a campaign to save the booties. You know, they can do that themselves. And the other thing is that because of the way they're structured and brilliantly structured uh, and cut down to the bone as well, um, you can actually build them up uh, later if that's where it comes to. You know, you can get rid of the uh, mount, Arctic mounting, mounting warfare card or, or whatever you want to do. Or you can come to the realism that we've got two carriers which we don't... We will never have the manning for two carriers. You don't have two carriers at sea at the same time, but you don't have the manning, and there is the main problem, is that doesn't... You, if you give the Navy a whole shed load of money and say, right, go out and get guys who will come and sail in the carriers, mm. you won't get it. Why because, not? Because that is the way that manning is going. It's not just the Navy. For example, uh, uh, the, uh, the chief of the general staff, who has got his, uh, his new ideal army which uh, which really has sort of kicked off this year, his biggest problem is he hasn't got enough people to slot into the holes that he's created for the new 2017 army. An army uh, directive is, is it got one big hole in it, and it's what he calls, is what uh, General Nick calls Manning, and that's hits both those services, not the RAF, but the, both those services. So this is a much bigger story. It is a story of you've got to save money but you still won't have the sort of people you want to be able to run what is left in it. Goes back to what Paddy Ashdown was saying. Do you think that um, you should cut the administration, the backroom functions? Do you agree with that? Um, well, the only thing I'll tell you is that the Navy's got 19 admirals. We'll leave it at that. But I will <laughs> tell you something else. Um, if we, we started off by talking about the fact that the superpowers can't run the world anymore and the sort of uh, asymmetric warfare that we have to fight now it's uh, afghanistan uh, was afghanistan uh, iraq uh, syria etc yemen what do you need for this you need special forces you need people who can work in platoon sides you need people in short like the not just the royal marines but the royal marines as well spearhead forces which you, is what they're what pushing you, for isn't yeah, it yeah you, what you you need people who can go in south sudan for example come out and that is thinking asymmetric when you start thinking about uh, your whole your whole uh, forces are based upon four nuclear boats two carriers like a junior Carl Vincent's uh, somewhere in the, in, in the South China Sea, you're thinking in w Cold War terms, not modern warfare terms. The FBS
A hundred years ago this week, America entered the First World War. President Woodrow Wilson had desperately tried to keep his country out of the conflict, despite political opposition. Once the Germans started targeting American ships in British coastal waters, their involvement seemed inevitable. Michael Stathis from Southern Utah University is still with us on the line, and Christopher Lee here in the studio. Um, well, Michael, the obvious question really is, how did American involvement in the Great War change it, if indeed it did? Uh, a difficult question. I think that it, um, uh, it's viewed differently um, uh, in Great Britain and on the continent um, uh, than uh, as it is in the United States. There is, has long been a uh, uh, an American assumption that uh, America saved Great Britain and France, uh, that uh, the American entry into the war um, uh, essentially won the war uh, just simply with that uh, uh, gesture. And the reality, of course, is far from that. Uh, America was not ready to uh, fight a modern war when uh, it uh, did enter finally on April 6, 1917. Um, it did not have a particularly uh, large military or navy. Um, but um, uh, and, and in fact, the inexperience um, uh, uh, showed on the battlefield uh, gravely. Um, uh, this was exposed um, uh, uh, quite up front with uh, horrendous American casualties uh, uh, initially. But the boost in manpower, the boost in supplies, certainly did have um, uh, an impact on um, uh, changing the course of the war um, uh, eventually over the next year. And was it also the boost in sort of knowledge of support that that side had the extra country joining it where um, Russia was disintegrated so it shored up that side of things and that must have aided it well, I think symbolically, uh, Christopher uh, will know the name of uh, the uh, the painting that I'm thinking of, but there's a very famous painting of uh, the, uh, the first uh, American destroyers uh, to enter British waters after the declaration of war, and uh, something to the effect of the return of um, uh, uh, the Mayflower. And uh, it, it was, I think, the symbolic value that the um, uh, United States had finally committed itself uh, to support France and Great Britain. And the psychological boost of, of this, I think, uh, in many ways uh, outweighed the um, number of soldiers uh, shipping over and the amount of uh, supplies. By the way, I want to note that my grandfather, uh, John Nicolaitis, was one of the first people in Utah um, having recently immigrated from Greece uh, uh, to avoid the draft in the Balkan Wars, uh, he came to Utah uh, and was one of the first to uh, volunteer to go to France. I thought your grandfather was one of the first people in Utah, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, uh, let's not confuse what happened in, in World War One and World War Two, and uh, they're, they're quite separate things. The, you're quite right about the importance of how people manipulated to try and get the Americans to come. And then come, come to 2017, don't forget, nor shall we forget the, one of the most remarkable changes in the First World War from any other battle. Um, it was the beginning of the end of the horse because mm. the tank came, and it was the tank that could change the whole course of what was it, the, the battle between trenches. And the other thing is Nash, Nash's paintings of the, uh, the destroyers and the frigates, uh, the small frigates as they were in those days, arriving... And people were saying, yeah, I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they're here. It's particularly important. The interesting thing is they came and never left. 
um, because after Versailles, they were still based here, and you had the president. President Wilson was almost, you know, sort of putting away the ideas of, I suppose, as Mr. Trump did originally, of being isolationist, and then you were going to have the League of Nations that was going to solve all these things, but the Americans couldn't join, mm. join in. But the Americans stayed, and yet when we got to the Second World War, for them to sign up for the actual war itself... Uh, took a long time and the Germans were saying at the time and said so in the Second World War also the thing that frightened them most was the fact that Britain still had an empire and they could defeat Britain Hitler said this later on, you can defeat Britain but we won't be able to defeat their empire so look at the medals for the Canadians in the First World War as well, they are far too many yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And, and there is that parallel there with Trump. And as you've elucidated there, it's, it is always the decision America has to make is to stay isolationist or come out into the world. And that has flip-flopped through the time. Michael Stathis, uh, Stathis thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Oh, uh, thank you, guys. the University of Southern Utah. It's been a pleasure as always. And uh, that brings us pretty much to the end of this edition of SITREP. Any final, final thoughts, Christopher? Well, only that. <clears throat> Can I go off on something else? Go and for th it. Th there Tangent was an away. explosion on uh, Borussia <clears throat> Dortmund's team's bus. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? it, it it's almost weekly there is some atrocity or potential atrocity uh, throughout Europe. People still go to the pub. People yeah. act as normal, and they always have. It's nothing to do with the fact that the IRA were here or whatever. They've always done this. Um, and when you look what's going on in Syria... By sheer survival, people are still coming out of the wreckage yeah. and not going to the pub, but getting on with life. with daily life. Christopher Lee, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on SITREP. Kate Jabot is back next week. Do join her if you can for that and look out for our subscription podcast as well. But for me, Tim Cooper, goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.